Recently I've gone to a wedding, it was a co-worker of my husband's, um, and like many weddings, uh, the pastor read a passage from 1 Corinthians 13. This passage is often known as the love chapter, um, and it, it lists all the attributes about love and what it does, what it doesn't do, and all these different things. Um, to my surprise, actually, the minister, she read the whole chapter. Usually they just read like the first little bit and then, of course, that last verse. But she read the whole chapter. And the reason, like I said, I was surprised is because it's not something that halfway through the middle, Paul goes on this weird tangent and doesn't seem to make sense with the rest of the passage. I think often we attribute this to kind of Paul's classic style of ADHD and rabbit trails. And if you've read many of Paul's epistles, you, you kind of get the sense of um, <laughs> Paul can't say anything in five words or less, obviously. Um, and so, you know, we just kind of imagine Paul's writing his letter, he's dictating it to someone who's writing it, and just a random thought sparks in his mind. And so he goes off on the tangent, and then finally he gets back to the point, and he kind of concludes with that very familiar thing about uh, these three remain, but the greatest of them is love. But really, I think there might be something more to it. So I want us to read the chapter, and chapter 13 is not really long, so I think we can read it, um, all of it today. So if you want to, uh, in your scripture, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it starts off like this. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm only a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have faith so I can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endure all things. Love never fails. As for prophecies, they will cease. For tongues, they will cease as well. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the, par the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am now fully known. So now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Um, I also want to put a little preference to this. I was reading from the ESV, and at one time I had this memorized in the NIV, so if you kind of were listening to it, and it's like to your ears, it sounded a little funny. It's kind of a mishmash of two versions, but there's something very beautiful that Paul is connecting here. And we hear in the beginning, he starts off with, if we have wisdom and prophecy and knowledge and all these great things, but do not have love, we are nothing. And then towards the middle, again, he connects and he says, wisdom and prophecies, they're going to cease. They're going to stop. They're not going to endure, but love will. And then all of a sudden, this is where we come to Paul's tangent. There's something about being a child and then growing up and seeing something uh, dimly in a mirror. There's something about knowing uh, partially, but someday maybe knowing something fully. And then it concludes with this idea of us being fully known. Um, and so again, the question is kind of, so what is Paul doing? Is this just kind of ran random? Is this just a rabbit trail? Or is it something maybe quite purposeful? One of the main attributes we ascribe to God is that God is love. We also confess that we cannot completely comprehend God. 
God is a great mystery whose ways are higher than anything us mere mortals can ever comprehend. Recently, I heard someone um, ask the question of, can we can know about God, but can we know God? In the midst of Paul's call to love, he inserts this idea. The answer is yes, we can know God intimately and deeply. Although we will never fully begin to express all that the infinite God is with our finite little words, we can find that we know God, and we can even know God fully. Here at Kingdom of the Logos, we often talk about truth, what is truth, and how we can judge and discern what is truth. Here, I believe in the midst of this chapter that we have often reduced to simply being something ooey and gooey about romantic love. We find truth. We find a call to be holy. We find love. This kind of love is not impossible because because God knows us fully. He loved us first, and therefore we can love. He has lived out this love and has shown us what it means to be who we are called to be. Maybe today we don't get it. Maybe like Paul, we see but a poor reflection in the mirror. However, by God's grace and through God's grace, we can know fully, not just cognitively, not just academically, but with our whole being, whole mind, body, soul, and strength, we can know what it means to be loved by God and what it means to love like God. Now we're going to play Hot Not or Sanctified with some fun memes. Now these are memes that we've put together about some different theological points from recent history. And how this game works is we're trying to decide if these are positive theological inspirations or not. If we say hot, then they are a positive theological inspiration. If they are not, well then they're not. And if we use the term sanctified, we're not meaning that this person or this statement is sanctified, but we're saying only God sanctified judgment can decide. And again, we want to hear from you. If you like our channel, hit like. And if you want to send us your thoughts on whether you think these are hot, not or sanctified, please send them to us. And to make things interesting, we can only say sanctified once per program. So let's get right into this. Anthony, what do we have for today? I prefer the monotony of obscure sacrifice to all ecstasies. To pick up a pen for love can convert a soul. And now this is a statement from Teresa de la Sue. And... With that if French... I tried to pronounce that, it would have been too soon. <laughs> now, so I wasn't they, sure. they are French, or she is French. And while I do like to, to have a nice hobby and pastime of making fun of things all <laughs> French, we will let uh, Therese de Sue have a bit of a, a pass. Because I think her, her, her statement here is pretty cool. She says, I prefer the monotony of obscure sacrifices to all ecstasies. And again... This statement really comes between the push and pull. Do we want high church where there's these grand cathedrals reaching up to the sky and we've got magnificent windows that we never could be up high enough to even look out. They're just way up above us. Or do we want the little things in life? When I come to this, I'm going to say it's hot, but I'm going to put it in a certain context. I think it's hot, but you've got to have the other side as well. I think when you say you want to reject the nice buildings, you want to reject the architecture that communicates the holiness of God, I think you get yourself in sort of a bad place. So I think this is an important idea that needs to be kept within the church. Amanda, what do you think? Yeah, and I think to continue that thought, um, we've kind of been on the opposite side of that pendulum swing now where people have so loved the kind of simple things that they've they've completely rejected the grander things. And, and by no means do I think Teresa is saying that 
Um, it is only in small acts that we see love because, I mean, obviously there are great acts of love and some great extravagant things that love has done. And so um, she's not discounting the other. What she is doing is she is calling people to say, um, you don't have to be necessarily a martyr that gets yourself burned at the stake in order to express love. You can do it in something as simple as picking up a pen. So in that context, this is a very hot theological statement. Yeah, and this statement comes at the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century. And again, you do see a culture moving towards, well, it's sort of the Industrial Revolution is sort of taking its fold. The turn of the century is happening. People are getting things, modern amenities that they didn't have before. And you have this world in a weird place where there's still the holdover, where people still dress a lot more modest than they do now. There's a lot more of those high church elements. And people are trying to figure out where they're at. I will say that I can definitely appreciate the language of obscure sacrifice because it's often seen today that um, I guess virtue signaling is very prevalent. So Yes, and if I can pick up on that, there's a lot of people who like to talk about virtue instead of doing it. I don't know, Amanda, you made a, a nod over there. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but <laughs> there's not as many people who want to actually do virtue. And I think one of the things she's encouraging us to is actually sacrifice. Don't go out and make a big show of it. So he who wills to reject nothing wills the destruction of will. For will is not only the choice of something, but the rejection of almost everything. Oh. G.K. Chesterton from Orthodoxy. All right. This is G.K. Chesterton. And I think this is a fantastic quote. And for those of you who are local to the Church of the Nazarene here in the Mid-South District, as you look at this meme, you will know immediately that Steve <laughs> Hoskins likes G.K. Chesterton. Um I, I have never heard Hoskins talk about Chesterton, but when you see what G.K. Chesterton looks like, you will know. It'll all come together. Um, so, Amanda, what are your thoughts on this at first? Or would you like me to share my thoughts? Well, no, um, I can share mine first. Um, as we're talking about how this, this looks like uh, Dr. Hoskins, I'm reminded of something he, he had taught us one, once in our classes. And he said, we, we know God not only where God is, but where God is not. And so I think this, to relate to what G.K. Chesterton is saying is, there there are standards, there are boundaries. And not that, you know, God is omnipresent, but there are places of, of deep evil and anguish that we know God is not in that. It doesn't mean that God's not all-powerful, but we can look at certain places and certain times in our world and be like, yeah, that, that was not within God's will. Um, God permitted it because he allows human beings to have free will, but that's not something God wanted to happen. And so for what G.K. Chesterton is saying is, as people of God, we have to look at stuff and say, you know, that's not a good option. And so we're going to reject that. Um, so this is just an amazingly um, great statement. And so for the purpose of our game, it is a hot statement. I'm going to say hot as well. We live in a world, though, that would say not to this because we live in a world that says your truth. Embrace your truth. It's all relative to what you experienced. But in reality, there's no magic rule in the cosmos that says everybody's experience is compatible with everyone's else. There's a huge problem with the bumper sticker coexist because it is based on this assumption that, well, everything's compatible. But in reality, for a lot of things to coexist, they have to compromise and alter themselves to the point where they're not even really that thing anymore. And what Chesterton is saying is, if you say that you'll accept anything, you're actually rejecting the very notion of will. You're basically saying there's nothing to accept anymore. Sort of like the statement that says everything is good. Well, that means that really nothing is good because some things are, are clearly not and you've reduced the world to a place of nonsense. 
I want us to think about it like this. If you're choosing to to enter into marriage with someone, you want to get married. Um, Amanda's the only one of, of us married. Um, that being said, send your dating applications to <laughs> 6186 Eaton's Creek Road. Um, all of, but got to be down with the Nazarene theology. Send that along. Anyways, if you're going to, to enter into marriage, you're not saying that you're marrying the world. Instead, you are marrying a particular person, which means you're telling everyone else, I'm, I'm not marrying you. That doesn't mean that you hate everyone else, but you're making a, a statement. You're saying, these are the boundaries. This is the person that I, I married. When people have families, they have children, they're saying, this is my family. This is who I, I come into my home with. doesn't mean I hate everyone else, but this is the reality of it. And Chesterton is really articulating this, that when we choose something, we are making serious choices. Then choices have consequences. When we say that we're not going to reject anything, we say, oh, everybody's relative truth, everybody's relative morality, it, it's all wonderful. Well, what you're actually hoping for is the destruction of morality. That's what that leads to. I think it's a hot statement. It's one that really stirs the mind. I think we're on agreement. Hot? I'll turn it back over to Anthony. It is definitely hot. And I will say, to build on what you said concerning relativism, I think whenever you see this put into practice concerning things like standards, a lot of times a quote like this put into practice concerning standards can seem extremely harsh. But honestly, it's probably the only way to actually improve things. Moving on to the next quote. Like the Christian sanctification, Christian community is a gift of God to which we have no claim. Only God knows the real condition of either our community or our sanctification. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his Life Together and Prayer Book of the Bible. All right. Amanda, you want to go first? Um, yeah, I can. I think this is something kind of odd, to be honest, um, especially coming from kind of a holiness um, uh, background and something where our emphasis is on entire sanctification. And I think if we kind of look at this first glance, some, some Nazarenes can get a little twitchy on it because um, we, we, we affirm that you have assurance yes. of your salvation. You have assurance of your sanctification. You have assurance of your Christian walk of the church. Um, so we really have to think, I think, very deeply into what Dietrich Bonhoeffer is talking about. And we also have to put him, I think, in historical context. And he's really part of a church that had laid down its authority, to reference some things we had talked about earlier in this program. The church had laid down its authority to the to Nazi Germany and said, you know what? Yeah, Nazi Germany, you can be in charge. We're going to just do whatever you tell us to. And, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer is like, no. And when he talks about life together, it is about community. And there are people that want to put these boundaries up that aren't God's boundaries. They, they want to put up these, these false sense of what does it mean to be a community? What does it mean to be sanctified? And remember, all sanctified really means is set apart. So if you're thinking, that's a really big word, what does she mean? So that's it. Just set apart. What does it mean to be a people that is consecrated, that is set apart, that is made different than the rest of the world around them? And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer basically says that it's God. It's not something you do. It's not something um, you can point at or say because we do A, B, and C and not X, Y, Z, then we're Christian. He's saying it's God that makes you holy. It's God that makes you sanctified. And therefore, it is God who constructs the church. And you almost stole the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> because that last statement, statement that it's God who constructs the church is really the important theme I find in this. And it's interesting you brought up the whole, we're in the church of the Nazarene, so we talk about entire sanctification. When I first read this, when I was reading through Life Together again here recently, in putting this meme together, the first word that came to my mind, Will, was what about assurance? 
And you might say, well, does assurance still work in this world where you say there is no claim to the church? And the answer is yes. What this statement is, is meaning is that we do not get to design the church. And now for a lot of people, that's going to make them really <laughs> mad. I know we were talking about those whole glass pulpits. You know, I've had people come in from the district before and be like, oh, look at y'all in there with those oak pulpits. Get them out. Get those suckers out and get the chairs in here in the glass pulpit. Get them in. Um, we did not go that route. But even if we did, it wouldn't matter that much because those aren't the things which define the church. Um, if, you, if you like the glass pulpit, <clears throat> distasteful, um, but more power to you because that's not what the church is about. The church is about something much more than that. It's, it's designed by God. It is derived from God. It is the, the holy bride of Christ. And the church in all of her holiness is something we have no claim in its design. We don't get to sit around and say, well, we want this virtue. We like this idea of charity and compassion, but this idea of like severity and truth and transformation out of sin, you know, that's nasty. We don't want to talk about that. And in reality, Christ, he comes to the table and he is both merciful and severe. Recently, I'd been preaching on the Gospel of John chapter 9, and we see in that Jesus comes and... I don't know many of us who would want spitty mud rubbed in our eyes, but Jesus comes and brings some very severe and serious transformation while also having mercy on a blind man. And he does this so that real transformation can happen. It's nitty gritty. It's kind of gross. But sometimes that's the reality of it. We don't get to design the church. It's not our claim. It has been designed by God and through the power of Jesus Christ and the transformation of the Holy Spirit, we can participate in the church. Any other thought, Amanda? No, I think... Uh, Anthony? Wait, did I even say hot on this? Yeah, I don't know if I actually... Yeah, I don't think I said hot either. either. Hot. <laughs> hot, hot. <laughs> to affirm hot. Anthony? <laughs> Anthony? Definitely hot. And I think... Um, I, I think I also remember Bonhoeffer saying that the church is not something that is to be imagined and then forced into manifestation, but a reality that we can only participate in. And I think that that is... Very, very beautiful and carries the same sentiment. If I can try to get, build off of what Anthony's saying, the quote is something like, the church is not an ideal we have to realize, is I believe what he says. To put that in 21st century language, the church is not a narrative for us to realize. It's designed by God. It's a reality. It is there whether we like it or not. It'll be there after we have fallen asleep in the Lord. It was there before us. Because the church is something which is of the design of God. And it is on God's terms that the church exists. It is not contingent on how we feel about it. It's not contingent on how we shape the narrative. But it is derived from God. Any final thoughts? I almost feel like I'm at church and I should say, if all hearts and minds are clear, <laughs> we are dismissed. But anyways, if you go liked our content. Oh, yes, go in peace. Everybody's got their, their one statement people say at church. We've got a, a little boy who I'm trying to get to come up with me on, on Sundays and Wednesdays and whatnot and be like, can you say it with me if all hearts and minds are clear? Um, it's like the final words at Jolton. When people hear that, they're gone. Anyways, send us your thoughts, questions, comments. Follow us on Facebook, YouTube. Of course, we're on SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. If you'd like to donate to the program, you can do that at patreon.com. So that's Kingdom of the Logos. And again, thank you so much for joining us. Check out our Instagram. Cool memes are coming up there. I'm on Twitter at jdylanproctor. Check us out. And on that, God love you and have a blessed day.